0: Good morning everyone. Good to be here with you as we continue on in our journey through the New Testament and we got well into our uh, look at the book of Hebrews last week and we're going to stay there today uh, and look at some more things and maybe even have some discussion over some challenging passages just for fun and uh, to see just to help each other understand a little more what's going on the Before we do, let's pray. Thank you, Lord. <clears throat> For the mercy that you show us by giving us your word, for the mercy of your Holy Spirit, and for the mercy of a believing community as we gather around your word and teach one another and led by your spirit and guided by your word, thank you that we can trust you to do your work in us and through us. And so would you guide us now in these moments in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So last week we had a brief introduction on the general epistles. And they're called general because they don't fit into the other category. We have a whole bunch of letters of Paul. We have four Gospels. We have one historical book, the book of Acts. But then we have these different books um, that God has given us that are by different authors. So James was used to write a book, Peter wrote two, John wrote three more. Uh, June And then John from the book of Revelation, but we'll consider that uh, separately as we move through. So we we talked about an uh, introduction to the book of Hebrews, and we said it's all over debate in the sense that we're not totally sure who the human author is. We're not totally sure the, the life situation in which it was sent. We're not totally sure what it was actually written but we looked at some cues, both within the text, cues within the first century context, cues within things that would have been what they would have discussed about, and said probably written in the early part of the 60s. Um, and then the discussion was about the author, some in church history, such as Paul, that is still the official position of Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, but evangelicals have been of the opinion that there is no common opinion (laughs) Um, and and so we're really not sure and so we quote one of the early church fathers and say but at the heart of the matter the Holy Spirit is the author of the book so uh, by not knowing exactly who wrote it because we don't see it mentioned anywhere in the text like we do with the letters of Paul uh, like we do with John um, or James or whatever Um, we just have to have a hermeneutic of humility But Origen says that as to who actually wrote the epistle, God knows the truth of the matter. We talked a little bit about, was it Paul? Was it not Paul? Uh, Was it Apollos? Was it Luke? Was it Barnabas? You can find some theologian in church history that can make a case for being this one or this one or this one. But they haven't won the day. It's not enough for us to really go by. We briefly looked at some things about the author. He wrote in a very high level of Greek. <laughs> Did you have some big uh, Yep. Thank you. Okay. He wrote in a very high level of Greek. He was obviously an educated man. It seems he was second generation, based on some clues we get from the text. He would have been one of the first but he knew the Old Testament, particularly in Greek, because he quotes from it. Times where he quotes the Old Testament, it matches. We call the Septuagint more so than it matches the word for word the Hebrew translation. Um, and so, this would have been the New Testament. i uh, sorry, the Old Testament that was in use in the early church, particularly outside of the Holy uh, Land, where Jews were in the diaspora, believers were spreading, and that was that was the Greek. Seeking part of the empire. Uh, before we move on, can I ask you um uh, <laughs> two three yeah. Couldn't that have been written by Paul? Um. it could have. But, uh, but yeah. I don't know I don't know how we go about proving it. Right. Because right? we don't have a manuscript that clearly says a letter from Paul to the Hebrews and the Diaspora. I, I for example, that, yeah. But um, second generation of believers I still think Paul can slide into that. And especially in that context of Paul, there's something mentioned about signs and wonders being given to the apostles. So could be. Could be. I, I'm not sure that much changes if it is or isn't in how we understand where. Yeah. Well, I'm not saying it's absolutely is Paul. But I think it has some good reasons to it. does. And that's why some uh, think that it, that is the right position. Um, and, and my exposure, evidential, and that is a minority report, but there are some that, and they have their reasons. Um, but there are others that look at it and say yes, but, and they have their reasons, and and it's not as clear cut like Philippians, Colossians, versus 2 Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians, things like that. It's not important if God would put, put It's yeah. just interesting, why was this one written differently than every other letter that Paul wrote? Paul addresses it, identifies himself from the beginning. We're here. He doesn't if in fact it was him okay so we said approximately in the early 60s seems to be the best fit he talks over and over again about all that was old so that The temple, the priesthood, the high priest, the sacrifices, the altar, the angels, Joshua, Moses, the Torah, all these things. And say they're being replaced by what is better, which is Christ. But does not mention what would have been a great part of the case that the temple itself is gone. He's talked about the fact that the high priest is better, Jesus is a better high priest, Jesus is a better sacrifice, Jesus is a better uh, mediator. But he doesn't talk about the fact that the temple itself is physically gone, which was cataclysmic in the history of the Jewish people. And one conversation you can have today if you encounter someone who is still Jewish is, well, what do you do if you build? (laughs) You don't have a sacrifice of atonement anymore. You don't have a temple. You don't have a scapegoat. You don't have all these sacrifices. What do you do with, with the guilt? And they, they kind of have to morph into, well, um, I just hope God is merciful or we hope to have a temple rebuilt one day or we hope to restore the temple in a priesthood or whatever. But they're not in a position where they can have their guilt atoned for. And that's why the book of Hebrews is so specific because it says you can. Have to tell Not only that, you're shame. He talks about a clean conscience that comes from the sacrifice in Christ. Before all these covered sin, Jesus actually puts sin away. And there's so just something to think about in the interaction we may have. Um, seems to indicate that some believers in Rome, it says those who are from Italy send their greetings... As if somehow they're with the author and sending greetings back home. What seems to be the case is that we're dealing with a group of Jewish people who have been exposed to the gospel, who have heard of the the new covenant sacrifices and uh, Jesus being the high priest and, and all these things as better and under persecution they are tempted to go back to the old way of doing things. And because they're under temptation to go back to the old way of doing things, he's warning them. You can't go back. If you've ignored the one propitiatory sacrifice in Christ, there remains no other sacrifice to take away sin. You've rejected the only one that's there. And so it's a warning against going away from the gospel, away from the covenant community of believers. And so he ends it at the end saying, Go outside the gate. Jesus went outside the gate and die on behalf of his own. Go outside the gate. Go outside of the covenant community that the community you were raised in and join in the new covenant in Christ. Okay, so there's this image all throughout. Well, we looked at how you could basically divide the book into two. This neatly is separated into the superiority of Christ and then the superiority of the Christian life. And uh, we, we broke it down a little bit more to how the author, who was very clear in his mind, how he was presenting his case, is very organized, keeping in mind his target audience, keeping in mind what he wants to accomplish, what he's trying to teach, has broken it down into the superiority, or Jesus is better in his person, in his work, and in his impact on those who believe in him. Mm-hmm. And so this is all just by way of summary because we want to get back to where we left off last week. But better. You think the book of Hebrews, you think better. Jesus is better. Whatever it was before, Moses, Joshua, angels, covenant, blood, sacrifice, temple, uh, incense, whatever it was, Jesus is better. And he is our great high priest, which we talked a little bit about how he continues to be our great high priest. So, we'll just leave that up for now, because where we ended last week was a little bit of a study in the first few verses of the book of Hebrews. As we were looking at, who is the Son? Okay? So he started out, and for those of you not here last week, we'll quickly summarize, but um, he starts out by saying, think of his audience, he is writing to those who have exposure, certainly an understanding of Jewish background, and so he says, long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So in many ways, right, and in many uh, times, And so we could think back through the history of the prophets and he appeared to one in a burning bush and he appeared to another in a dream and another in a vision and another was just called and one was working in the field and one was a king and one was whatever. He spoke, God spoke through them. They were faithful, what God said was true. Uh, It it pointed to who God is, but verse 2. But in these last days... So in other words, since the time of Christ... Coming to Christ... And we would say until now... Because all this is the last days... Until Jesus returns... He has spoken to us by... Most of our translations say His Son... But as I pointed out last week... In the Greek, it's actually a son... The point that he's making here in the first two verses is... Comparing the means of revelation... Under the Old Covenant many times, many ways, that now there is a better means of revelation and it is through a son. Not just through a prophet, not just through a dream, not just through a vision. Now it is correct, it's okay to say his son, but we need to keep in mind the argument that the writer is making. Whereas before God spoke through this, 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 and this, today he speaks through a better means, a better source of revelation of son. Through whom? And then we begin to look at who this son is. Now what is interesting is the Son is not mentioned. Right? When do we see the first mention of the word Jesus in the book of Hebrews? 10. Chapter 10? No, before. It's chapter 3? Before. <laughs> yeah, before this. Oh, three. you? said it last <laughs> week. I, I did. I, I did. Um, chapter 3? The first time with the name Jesus is actually mentioned is chapter 2, verse 9. Now there's references to a son or the son all the way before that. We know who the son is. Okay? And so we're tempted to keep putting the name in there. But if we remember the original argument, the original audience, the original writer, we need to follow the argument of what he's trying to show. Okay? It's not that we're ashamed of the name Jesus. It's that he doesn't bring it in until halfway through chapter 2. So he's saying there's a greater means of revelation, a son. And then he's going to talk about the nature of this son. And that's where we looked at last week that there is a seven-fold description of this son. And we looked at the first three, through whom he appointed heir of all things. And through whom he appointed the heir of all things this is the fulfillment of the promise given in Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. Okay? Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm that talks about the the reigning priestly king or the king that's coming that will be over all, the anointed Messiah. And that this this son, whose name is not given yet, is going to be the heir. He is going to inherit all things through whom he also created the world. We talked about that last week. So that uh, this Son, this mediator of the Son, the means by which God speaks to me through His Son, is the heir of all things and through Him all things were made. Now that is affirmed with what we see in the first few verses of the Gospel of John. Right? We see it in Colossians 1, 15-16. Uh, we see it in other places where Jesus is the... <laughs> is the agent of creation, the one through whom all things were created. Okay, so this Son, this greater way that God is revealing Himself is the heir of all things and the creator of all things. And then He is the radiance of the glory of God. Now we look at it and say, well, that sounds really nice, but it's a reminder that in the Old Testament when you saw the radiance of the glory of God was His divine appearing. He was there in power and glory. Uh, he, he, sh- uh, he shown who He was through His glory. He's the radiance of the glory of God. It's a sign of divinity. It's a sign of divine presence. Um, that would be amazing because... You have the sun, you have the moon, you have all of these things, and yet the radiance of God. What it did. Well, this is why we put all the scripture together, because in the Gospel of John, we're continually told, but he, you know, it's not yes. hid, but it was veiled. Right. And at times in the miracles of John, and his glory was revealed. His glory was revealed. And then Jesus towards the end says, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. And it's starting to build and as it moves towards the hour of the hour of his suffering, death, crucifixion, burial, ascension, and enthronement. He now is full of the glory of God. That's why he told Mary not to touch him. That's what? That's why he told Mary not to touch him. Well, there's some discussion about what that means. but yeah. So, he's the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. So, this son, this greater means of revelation is something to behold. he inherit all things. But because he will redeem all things that he has created. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint. And we said the Greek word there was character, get the word character from it. It's the exact imprint. When you take that stamp and you put it into the clay, it has the exact imprint of what's on the print. Yes? Can you explain once again why he waited until verse 9 before the Christ and why? He's <laughs> developing an argument. Okay. okay. He's developing an argument to his first readers Because what's their temptation? Their temptation is to go back to the former way of doing things. And now he's saying, wait a minute, there's a greater way that God has revealed himself today.
1: And he's saying, and this greater revelation when God
0: has revealed himself, this is what he is. Okay, he's got a very specific argument that he's making. He's going to go through these seven things in the first few verses. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than. And then he's going to mention it. Oh, by the way... Not as a throwaway line, but namely, Jesus. Okay? The exact representation of his being, um, the word character, we said that when you put the king's image on a coin, that's character. You put the king's character on the coin. That's how that word was originally used. Well, imagine then seeing the one who is essentially uh, what God is. What God is, essentially, in the essence of God, so is the, the Son. And so to see the Son is to see what the Father is like. That's why Jesus could say, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Not because He's confused about the nature of the Trinity. It's because He knew that He was the embodiment of the character of God. The love, the majesty, the holiness, the truth, the mercy, the greatness grandeur of the Father. He knew that He was... The, the ultimate expression of that on Earth. And then we saw he sustains all things by the power of his word. This, this, is, this is an amazing thing to me because you know space exploration, as you know, like everything else, has been used for political propaganda. Right? So when the first cosmonauts went into space, one of them came back and said, I've looked everywhere in the universe and I didn't see God. And that was supposed to be this great argument that God doesn't exist. <laughs> Especially when Paul says, the heavens declare the glories of God, the order of the planets, the stars, the solar system, and stuff like that. So when, when the astronauts, the American astronauts, went into space, what did they do? Look. Just no, they read, they read Genesis chapter 1. Oh, that's right just to show that we, we're looking at the majesty of God in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And they, they talk about how the majesty is unfolded. Now I, you know, I, there's a lot of propaganda that was involved there during the Cold War and what was going on there. But that's what we as Christians as believers can say, amen and amen. Just as a throwaway note. Um, several years ago, Carol and I were blessed to meet um, Charlie Duke One of the 12 men to walk on the moon. Oh, wow. We got a picture taken with (laughs) him. And it was really fun to hear what it was like as he was sharing what it was like to walk on the moon. We got to see some old grainy videos um, um, of what they did. But just to hear, he is a believer in Jesus Christ. He is an astronaut. He is an excellent physicist. He he goes and consults companies. But then everywhere he goes, he also Preaches the gospel. So he's a great ambassador for Christ. So one of the 12 men that's walked on the moon so far is just giving this dynamic testimony that there is a God who's created the heavens the He earth. says he's the youngest. Yeah. The youngest? Yeah. My source, Google. Your, your source. Jerry, <laughs> you? well, we I can all trust Google. <laughs> but if this oh. is the one, if this is the son, this son, this greater means of revelation, inherits all things, creates all things, the exact great, the imprint of God, radiates the radiance of His glory, upholds all things by the word of His power. We talked about this at the end last week, right? So without Him, it all collapses and disappears. Yes, that's exactly what Colossians 1 In Him, all things hold together. Uh, so if in fact, in Christ, all things hold together, and He upholds the universe by the word. The word is power. Hmm. We think about our relationship with that one. Mm-hmm. Right. Do we really need to fret over all these things? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, this writer now, he's moving the people to understand, boy, that, yeah, this really is a great, this must be a divine being. He's moving towards that. Because if he's the agent of creation, the rays of God's glory, his exact imprint upholds all things by the word of His power. The next argument is, did the angels get this much glory? Okay. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So He's building the Old Testament case for this being the Messiah. But moving on to the next one, this is where we're going to begin today. After making purification for sins... Stop. Purification for sins. What would be the interest of his initial writers? What are they thinking about? Animals, bulls, goats, sheep, scapegoats, temple, sacrifice, priests, high priest, know all those things. After making purification for sin. So they understood that this sin didn't actually cleanse their conscience because they had to do it again. Had to do it again. Had to do it again, again, and again, and again. Here he made purification for sin, and what did he do? He sat down. The high priest never sat down because the high priest's job was never done. He was still offering sacrifices, still offering incense, still offering um, the the prayers or whatever. He never sat down. But this high priest, this means sat down. The rest of the book is really going to talk about how he made purification for sin sat down, how he could be the purification for sin. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty and high. Sat down at the right hand of the majesty and high. Now think about the symbolism in the ancient world of sitting at the right hand. What was that? god. Oh. Authority, authority, privilege, power, special relationship, unique. Only one could sit at the right hand. Highly honored. Yeah. Okay. So you can understand then that this will at least start to cause some light bulbs to start to shake and maybe go out. As people are trying to understand all of this as the writer is writing to them and explaining how great this sun is. He is challenging them full on to stay with this new way that God has revealed Himself and not go back to the old way. Okay? Because the old way does not have a mediator means method to do what this new source of revelation means the revelation to do. The Son. Okay? And, and we'll go on. And, and, but just think of the all of the messianic that are fulfilled or pointed to just in these few verses. Okay? And he will expound on that in the rest of the book. Uh, Very powerful apologetic, very powerful argument for who this son is. And then if you want to talk about how the son is superior to the angels, that the angels worship this son, right? Again, verse 6, when the firstborn comes into the world, he said, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, He said, He makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God. Who's speaking here? It's the Father saying to the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever. Wow. Either he's, this is audacious or it's true. And because it's true, as Jesus will go on and show how it's true. So you see the case that He's making now. That this one is superior to all that's come before okay? And then the rest of the book goes off, Jesus is better than the angels, Jesus is better than Moses, Jesus is better than Joshua, Um, Jesus is better than the high priest, and and it goes on. And so at the end, he says, don't abandon this, don't walk away. There's no other sacrifice once once you walk away. You can see how powerful that would be. So it's in light of that context and that we interpret some of the difficult passages that, at least for us, are hard to understand. It's in light of that context of what the intent of the letter was so that we don't trip ourselves up by superficial readings that may cause doubt or may bring us off into other discussions that the author was not intended to address. Okay? So, there's a lot there. I mean, if we were just to look at the different passages that he quotes from in the first chapter, he's quoting from the prophets, he's quoting from the writings, he's quoting from uh, the Psalms, to show that this, this son is superior. Okay, and then he doesn't mention a name then. But now he gives his first warning in chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away. You see the context, and you kind of hear it. Look, pay attention to what I've just said. Don't wander away from this. So, then he goes down to verse 9 after showing... It was not the chapter two, verse five. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This is quoting from Psalm eight. Psalm eight is a commentary on Genesis one about the creation of man and the image of God. But here it's showing that Psalm 8 was pointing forward to the ultimate man. Now, in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him, but we see Him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Jesus. Now He finally mentions who this Son is, after He's laid out this elaborate argument to get us ready to be understand to understand who He is. Namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. How did he make purification for our sin? He tasted death. He's the imprint of the radiance of God. Here we're showing that he is crowned with glory and honor. You can see how it all fits together as we start moving through the book. Okay? So no, we're not turning this into a long study and writing Hebrews. (laughs) much as that might be tantalizing, because it's a wonderful, wonderful letter. Now let me just open it up for questions that you might have concerning the book itself. Yes, sir. Um, Mine came from chapter three, verse one. Um, It's pretty familiar territory for most of us to consider Jesus as prophet, priest, and king didn't realize apostle Yeah, part of that list. In fact, I asked that question last week. Who is the greatest apostle mentioned in the New Testament? (laughs) Jesus. Apostle means the sent one. Apostle, just, that's where it comes from. So the early apostles, the original 12, were the sent out ones. Um, And so who is the ultimate sent one of the Father? As the Father has sent me. So Yes, ultimately that which fits in with, but in these last days he has revealed himself through a son. (coughs) A sent one? Jesus, yes. Okay. How many have ever had a discussion on the, well, let me just back up. There might be other questions you might have. Now you're waiting to see what I was going to say. (laughs) A discussion on the warning passages. What do these warning passages mean? Right? You ever had that discussion with anyone? (coughs) Well, what does Hebrews 6 mean? What does Hebrews 10 mean? What's the purpose of the warning passages? Well, it really depends on what school of thought you take. And uh, as it might not be all that surprising to you, there are several schools of thought that are taken. Um, some of it we, we bring to the text, but we want to get out of the text, and it's really hard for any of us to slow that process down and let the text bring to us what it wants to bring. But if you turn to your notes on page, if you page 60 in your notes, it's just some of the questions that... People <laughs> Need to consider as they look at the five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. There's a reason why I labored to explain the original argument that he's trying to make because I do, I do think it helps us to understand what the warning passages might be referring to. Okay? And what whenever you come to a difficult point in any text, Anywhere, Psalm, Psalm 25 or Romans 8 or Leviticus thirteen, or whatever, is, you ask yourself what, what is, if there's a question, there, what is the question that's intended to be answered? What is the context? What's the situation that it's addressing? So when we get to these warning passages about those falling away and those losing something, what, what are the questions that the author is trying to address? Still... So, uh, Randomly, up, step away. But even there, you know, What what does it mean to step away? Who steps away? What happens when they step away? What is lost if you step away? Um, what does it mean if you step away? Uh, so, it, it, you know, and and what? How does that fit into the overall message? And then we interpret Scripture in light of Scripture, right? So generally, a good principle of interpretation is clear passages interpret not-so-clear passages. We often turn them around, okay? But where God has clearly made it plain, we look at it, we read it, we know what it says. That becomes the framework by which we interpret those passages that are less clear, okay? Um... There's different things that are mentioned here. Dealing with salvation. What what type of salvation is the writer talking about? Is it past salvation? Present? Is it future? Is it salvation from sin? Is it salvation from suffering? Is it salvation from wasting your life? What does apostasy mean in this context? Who could apostatize? Is is that something a true believer can do? Is he dealing with those who are not yet believers and trying to get them to become believers? Yeah. It appears to me that he's mentioning the third temple Jews in relation to Esau and Jacob. Because you're saying clear passages explain less clear passages. So he says Esau who forsook his birthright. And that seems to be what he's kind of talking about in Hebrews. He's describing apostasy because he's dealing with the split from the Christians and the Jews who are, quote unquote, rebuilding the third temple. Not aware that the third temple has already been made. Then again, I don't have the passage in front of you. Yeah, okay. well, because there's actually five different passages that are dealing with different historical issues. So um, you might have just lost a few people in your explanation as far as what we're getting at. So um, I'll come back to you. But probably will. But then, how does this fit in with their understanding of future states? So some people, for example, they, they want to bring in a certain view of the millennium, their understanding of these passages or what they imagine the new heavens and the new earth being like, and they bring them into this passage. Well, oftentimes we bring the framework to the passage, and then we try to force it into our framework. And it's hard for us to not do <coughs> and to just let sometimes the difficult questions lie. So you can feel the tension there. Um, if we fall away, what do we lose? What does it mean to fall away? Um, what does it mean we must persevere? Is this written to a community? Is it written to individuals within a community? Is it both? You can see where some of the issues are. So, I mean, books and articles and conferences have been held on this issue. And I've got a book in my library. It's Four Views on the Morning Passages of Hebrews. And so you have all evangelical scholars interacting with one another. And as you read through it, based on what their a priori is, what their starting point is, you can pretty well determine where they're going to end up in their understanding. And they obviously then not all end up in a different place as far as their understanding, so then they interact with each other. That's one of the beauties of those books that allows Christians to interact with one another and focus on those things they can agree on. Okay? It takes a little bit of work to kind of work through it because there's certain assumptions that come into it. Okay? So, I'm going to make this as simple as I know how to make it, just to give you the different views and let you wrestle with it. Okay? Knowing that I also have my point of view, <laughs> so I'm, I'm hardly an unbiased observer. Okay? So, as I look at the historical context, he's writing to this group of people who want to go back to the old way and say, don't do that. What happens if they do? So, you have the loss of salvation meeting. And this is held um, by those that will be followers of Jacob Arminius who who think that um, it's it's, it's just touch and go all along the way. You can can be in, you can be out, you know, depending on what's going on, you make that decision to stay or to jump or whatever. But they say that these warning passages refer to authentic believers who've been born again, regenerated, and they can become unborn again and lose their salvation and fall away. Okay? Um, That's one view. That's the loss of salvation. Um, There's pros and cons to all these views. Um, So we'll just leave it at that. There's questions and problems that I could give for each view, but for now I just want to present them. Then you have the second one, the loss of rewards view. Uh, This would come from those that um, (coughs) would typically be seen as being involved in what we call dispensationalism. Uh, graduates of Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, many Bible colleges that would say that um, what we have here is a loss of rewards. That you know, once you're born again, you're born again, and you can go off and live terrible, dreadful lives, and maybe even die in unbelief still be saved because you, you you were saved by faith, you just lose rewards. Either and then they, di- they differentiate, you lose rewards either in the one in kingdom or you lose rewards in the eternal state. And they go back and forth on that. Um, you have a third view which calls it a test of genuine faith, which is a typically let's say reformed and Presbyterian view that says that in the context of how God works in covenant with His people, He is the one that's in control of the process from beginning to end, choosing those that are in the covenant with Him, and what He starts, He finishes. And so, these are warning passages that um, are challenging believers to make sure that they're walking by faith, they're trusting the Lord, that they don't um, just abandon the faith and walk off. Um, there will be trials and tribulations but ultimately believers will not leave um, there's a fourth view, a theoretical view, and this comes from various different schools of thought that just say these are warnings that are given from various different points of view to just keep people persevering in the faith God uses means. He uses the community of believers. He uses the scriptures. He uses the promises. He uses the gathering of the saints to help believers persevere in their faith. Um, and they would say that these warnings, it always ends with the word of promise. Or the, word of hope. the last one is the hardest one to really wrap my mind around, but it's come up several times. That is what's called the covenant community He's writing to a, a specific group of people within the context of a covenant community. And they take the Old Testament meaning of that, meaning they've been set apart. Been set apart for God's purposes. And as a community, they're contemplating, though they have been moving towards uh, walking with Christ in their community, they're tempted as a community to walk away. Like the whole community is like they are just moving away. So it's an adaptation from... I would say views two and three. That one's not as prevalent. It's come up more, I would say, in the last 30 years among those that would be that would be reformed. Um, but are addressing more community than individual. Okay? There's presuppositions behind every one of these views. There's assumptions that are built in that become how do we test the views. There are questions and considerations and serious problems with each view, okay? Um, So feel the tension of that. Now, if you come to me in my office and you say, help me to understand this view or help me to understand what's going on, this is what you hear me say, Okay? And that is, I think it is more along the lines of um, view number three, because of my understanding of all the rest of Scripture, that God redeems, God keeps, God blesses, God disciplines, but that ultimately this is not talking about true, born-again, spirit-filled believers who can apostatize and walk away from the faith and be eternally lost. I do not think that's what the writer of Hebrews is addressing. And I base that because the clear passages of Romans, Ephesians, the Gospels really give a clear view that God doesn't have stillbirths, God finishes what he starts. God causes his people to persevere. And so these tests that are given are a warning to us to persevere, which we are called to do. And so you have God working so that we work. The result is he preserves and we persevere. Okay? And that tension then you see all throughout the writings of Paul, you see it in the Gospels, that God works in us so that we work, so that we persevere in faith joyfully, obediently, willingly, and God is the one who gives the power for us to do that. Okay? So, therefore then we have to look at these difficult passages and interpret them in light of the assurance that we have in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the will of God. Okay? And that that these are meant to really get people to challenge the current situation to really analyze deeply. And even in in Hebrews 6, where it seems like those that have had some exposure to the church, to the gospel, to the miracles, to the things of Christ, they walk away. He turns around and says, But it is not so with you. I have a more hopeful word, word pertaining to salvation. It's not something that they've actually done. Okay. I just think pastorally and theologically that's a position that I can support and defend as consistent moving throughout the New Testament. Okay. Some disagree with me. One of uh, some friends that I worked with at the seminary, they disagreed with me. And I I quickly remind them, and I disagree with you. You know that's just that's just part of the bantering that goes on. Uh, because there are just certain things that are just beyond our ultimate grasp. What was their argument? Well, most of my, I would say most, some of my colleagues looked at view number two and said it has nothing to do with eternal salvation. It has everything to do with what rewards they get. Now, I don't believe in the judgment of works for believers, that there will be a reward dished out based on our obedience and our lack thereof. And But then it says we're going to turn around and lay at Jesus' feet anyway, Okay. But I can't I can't embrace that view for a number of reasons um, because I can't abide by statements that some of them make that someone can actually die as a I'll just put it as gently as I can, someone who actually denies the faith and can still be saved. I just do not see that God would bring that about it you know, would allow that to happen, that somebody could be born again and end up as a blasphemer and still be saved. Too late. Hmm? It's too late. Okay. No, no, what I mean is they say you don't lose your eternal salvation, you just lose your rewards. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, Number two. that that's, that's a little too neat by half trying to say it's all the rewards you'll get during the millennial kingdom and really has nothing to do with whether you'll be saved forever or not. Mm-hmm. The way the reformers would say it is grace alone saves, but the grace that saves is never alone. That grace empowers us through faith to be obedient, to do good works, to have a change of heart, to really desire to grow in holiness and godliness. And we do grow in holiness and godliness as the Spirit is empowered in obedient, okay? But never reach perfection. So that at the end, it still all loops back to it's all. It's all of God by grace and faith through His promises if you were to come to my office, which I don't have, so you can't approach me. <laughs> Romans chapter 6, I, I, I compare the person or the type of individual that is described there to Jesus. Here, here is a man that you're talking. You're talking Hebrews chapter six. Yes. Did yes. you say Romans? Yeah. No. Okay. I think you mean Hebrews chapter. Six. Yeah, that's what okay. What I do. okay. 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 <laughs> Judas experienced it all. Right. He was such a privileged, such a privileged position. Right. But it, but in the end, he was faithless. He. Right. And so that, that's the, that's kind of, and, and, and it may not be altogether obvious to anyone. Of course, God knew Jesus. Right. But it wasn't obvious to the others, but when there was all said and done. He, uh, it was called the son of perdition. Yes. Which is pretty strong, <laughs> pretty strong uh, uh, comment. So, yes, and I would, I would think that that is a legitimate argument based on this view. Okay that they're, they're really, at the end, he was remorseful, but he was not repentant. Whereas Peter was repentant. Oh, man, I failed my Lord. It came back. Yes. Jesus didn't. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm? Remor- I'm running that through my mind. Remorseful, not, not repentant. Yeah. And I agree 100 <laughs> that So, it's okay for us to live some, a little bit in that tension, but I I, I just... I believe in the perseverance of the saints, I believe in endurance. It's mentioned all throughout here that God will help his people persevere. We are called to endure and persevere, and yet it's all empowered by God. And it's always in the context of what? Of a believing community. Not stand-alone, lone ranger Christians. All throughout Hebrews here is talking about a covenant, the community of the redeemed. And how they have to walk together, persevere, hang out together, teach one another, not just kind of wander off, and not just forsake the gathering of ourselves, as he says in Hebrews chapter 10. So, what do you that these people are going to lose? I mean, in the big picture of the whole... Well, that's, that, that's the question, Rusty. That's where all these different views try to wrestle. What can be lost? And uh, ultimately, for me, my perspective is that we're not... They, 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 of course, can lose rewards because of their disobedience. And I do believe that believers can fail. We do often. <laughs> I don't believe they can fall away ultimately and finally. And so that's why we repent daily. That's why we confess our sins regularly. That's why we admit or we continue to apply the graces of God to our lives. Because we will fail, but I do not believe we will fail ultimately and finally and eternally will persevere. And then it will all be because of God. Right. So when Paul says work out your salvation with fear and trembling, our responsibility apply the gospel to every aspect of your life engage your minds, engage your hearts, engage your hands, work out your salvation with fear and trembling And the next verse. For it is God who wants in you to will and to work according to his good purpose. So the desire that we have for holiness is because God, the Holy Spirit, is working in us already. And therefore, it all goes back to Him. And therefore, He gets all the glory in the end. Okay? Other comments, questions? Did I say again? Or are you, just a reflection? <laughs> reflection. Okay? Yes? I have a Mormon friend that she says she knows she's going to go to heaven. She's just not sure which realm she's going to be. I don't know. That brings on me. Yeah, yeah. Mormon theology, you know that they have three heavens. You know, Depending on who you are, or what heaven you're end up in. Yeah, that's a total misunderstanding of Paul in 2 Corinthians when he says he went to the third heaven. So it's a misapplication and a misunderstanding of the verse. And ultimately, you're either with Christ and His glorious presence forever, or you're away from Christ under His eternal life. And there is no middle position. And that was, you know, what Christ himself did. So we have to take that seriously and preach that, even to our moral friends. It's also what He taught the disciples, because they wanted to stop people from healing. He said, whoever is not, whoever is for us is for us. Whoever is against us, is against us. Um, I- the appeal to the fact that we want to keep making in a sense pure and pure and pure and pure, which is legitimate, and not give God the credit that he might be working elsewhere through different types of people with different situations and what we might initially do, and yet if they are blood bought by the Savior and dwell in the Spirit and have the Word of God, it might look different than us. But if they're preaching the same gospel, then they're our brothers. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on that? There's more thoughts going on. I can see the engines turning, so I'm just trying to think. <laughs> it gives us something to think about. This is a beautiful book that God has given us that was intended to fill us full of assurance of how great Jesus is. So let it do its job by just showing you how great. And even in those warning passages, there's great security. And so if you focus on the fact that Jesus right now is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you according to the will of of God, that he has procured for you a eternal eternal redemption, as it says in in, in Hebrews 9, that our consciences have been cleansed from the guilt of sin. Well, that's, you, you you can have a nice little fellowship time with the Lord just focusing on that. And I think that's the purpose of the book of Hebrews, to show how great Jesus is. Be so enamored with Jesus, why would you even consider anything else? Okay, and I think that's a message that still brings you today. Alright, so we've knocked down the first general epistle. I'd like to say they get easier, but they've all got their challenges. We'll go to the book of James next week, which will cover a lot of the same material, but in a very different way. It's the beauty of God's Word, how it just shows how we can learn things from different angles. So, let me pray this out. And yeah, get out and join Father, we we're mindful this morning of how privileged we are to have a Savior who upholds all things by the Word's power. Help us this week, just Fall into that truth joyfully. Knowing that He upholds us. And that whatever we're facing, whatever situation, whatever challenge, the Lord Jesus Christ has us. And Father, we thank You that not only is He our High Priest, He's our sacrifice, He's our mediator, He's our apostle, He's our prophet. Help us to lavish in the grace of Jesus this week that you've shown us in the book of Hebrews and to rejoice in the great salvation that he accomplished for us. And stir us, Lord, to greater holiness, to greater community, to greater affection for you and for your people. And Father, in our limited understanding that we have in